I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 13 this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Father, we ask now that your spirit would give us minds to hear as you, from your word, teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, I preached on Ephesians chapter 4, and we learned that the Apostle Paul taught that a maturing and a a growing church is a church that has an every-member ministry. We're all participating. It's a church that equips the saints for the work of ministry, a a church that is growing and maturing in unity, a a church that is maturing and growing in the truth and in Christ-likeness, and they are growing in love. And love, as I mentioned, was the main ingredient. In those verses, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, as important as unity is, and it's vitally important, as important as truth is, obviously truth is important, and as important as it is that we are all growing in Christ-likeness, none of those things can be separated from love. Again, I mentioned last week, love for others does what? It produces unity, and, and, and love for the Bible produces growth and maturity in the truth, and love for one another produces teamwork where we're working uh, together, and love for God and Christ produces spiritual transformation so that we grow in the image of Jesus. And so you cannot define a biblical church or a biblical Christian apart from love. And so last week we looked at love at the end of that sermon, and this week we're going to pick up on love once again. It's the focus of these verses here by the Apostle Paul in this great letter of Romans. Let love be genuine, he says in verse 9. And, and then in verse 10, he instructs us to love one another with brotherly affection. And so love is the theme of these verses. Now, prior to this, in the, in the book of Romans... All references to love, and, and, and here in particular we're talking about agape love, uh, we find that in verse 9, refer to the love God has for us. It, it, it's this love that was poured into our hearts, Paul says in chapter 5. It's the love that was demonstrated on the cross, Paul says again in chapter 5. And it's the love which refuses to let us go. You may recall that famous passage, for I am sure that neither life or death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. 
God's love, referred to again as agape love in the Greek, is, is, is his love for us. It's a self-sacrificing love, a love that puts the well-being of others first. And it's God's love toward us in Christ. That's what Paul's been focusing on all the way up to this point in his letter prior to coming to chapter 12. God's love for us. But now, beginning in verse 9, Paul focuses on that love, God's love for us. And, and he says it's actually the essence of Christian discipleship. In fact, one writer said Romans 12 to 15, chapters 12 to 15, are this sustained exhortation to let love govern and shape all of our relationships, every relationship. For example, in in chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, Paul says love should shape our relationship to our enemies. In chapter 13, 1 to 7, Paul says love should shape our relationship to the government, to the state. And then in verses 8 to 10 in chapter 13, it should shape our relationship to the law. In fact, in chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, love is to shape our relationship um, in relationship to the return of Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 14 and 15, love is to shape our relationship to the weak, the struggling brother and sister. It it must permeate all of our relationships. Uh, But notice, notice that he begins... In these exhortations to love and all these relationships, he begins with the family of God. He begins with our relationships with one another. That's what our passage is all about. In verse 9, Paul introduces the subject of this love by telling us two specific things about it. And then in verses 11 to 13, 10 to 13 that is, he elaborates on how love functions what it looks like. It gives us 10 specific exhortations. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in detail this morning. So turn beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, as I just said, verse 9 has two specific things we learn about biblical love. First, that it's got to be genuine. Let love be genuine, Paul says. The Greek word uh, literally translates without hypocrisy. It means without a mask. And what it refers to is a word that was used in Greek theater. And so the actors or actresses would carry uh, a mask to communicate to the, those listening, those in the theater, if it was, it was a scene of romance or if it was a scene of tragedy or a comedy, that mask would point those things out. And so they were called the hypocrites. They were play actors. And so Paul is telling us that if we're to love biblically, we're not to play a role. We're not to be play actors. We're to be genuine. One writer said the church, and he's talking about us, the, the, the people, must not turn itself into a stage. Love is not theater. Love belongs to the real world. Indeed, love and hypocrisy exclude one another. See, he says, this author says, love is the sum of virtue, and hypocrisy is the epitome of vice. And so they're a contradiction, and they shouldn't be mixed together. Now, most of us know how to pretend to love. 
We know how to be nice, how to speak kindly to someone. That, that's good. You shouldn't just go around, I'm not feeling love, so I'm just going to be mean to everybody. Uh, we, we know how to avoid hurting someone's feelings. Um, we can appear to take interest in someone's life. We may even be skilled in pretending to feel moved with compassion when we hear of others' needs or to become indignant when we learn of an injustice. Right? We, we, we jump in and we say, oh, I, I can't believe that happened, but we're not having biblical love. See, that's not the love Paul is exhorting us to. He's saying this in so many words, get off the stage and drop your masks. And a genuine or sincere love goes far beyond politeness. It's good to be polite, but it goes beyond that. It actually requires effort and concentration. This is agape love. Paul's calling us to have a God-like love for other people. He's calling us to love with the very love that he's placed within us. Um, in Jesus Christ. Such love it demands our attention, he's saying. Look, it'll demand your time to love this way. It'll demand your money to love this way. It'll demand personal involvement. It requires sacrifice if you're going to love this way. And, and it demands our sincerity. And so our love must be genuine. That's the first thing. Second, verse 9 tells us that this love is discerning or discriminating. Let love be genuine. And then he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. A more literal translation may go, let love be without hypocrisy, as we mentioned, hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Now, it's interesting. Paul's talking about love, and he's telling us how we're to demonstrate this love. And he begins here with a command to hate. When you read it, it's a command to hate. And it should shock us, and yet it shouldn't be a surprise. Why? Because our love as Christians is the model the love God has and a reflection of God's love. And God hates. He hates evil. Proverbs 6 says, tells us seven things, that is, that God hates. Haughty eyes. He hates a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. He hates those things. Isaiah tells us that God hates religion that is just merely formal. When you come before me, he says, who, who has asked this of you, There's this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless Meaningless offerings, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. They were called to assemble. They were called to keep these Sabbaths. They were called to bring their offerings, but, but they were wearisome to God now. He hated them. Why? Because they were just done out of formality. So we learn in, in Amos, I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. That's God speaking. And they were performed hypocritically. And so he hated them. Love is not to be hypocritical. Therefore, if we love as God loves, and we must, right, as Christians, that's how we're to love, then there will be things for us to hate. In fact, this word hate here is a very strong word for hate found in the whole Bible. It implies uh, more than just mild displeasure. Oh, those things just bother me. 
I, I kind of dislike them. That's not what it's saying. It, it's, in, it's an aversion to. It's actually a loathing of. Another way, he abhors them. And so we must loathe evil. Loathe it. Hate it with the strongest possible hate is what is being taught. If we're to love the way Christ loves, then we must hate the way Christ hates. And Christ hates evil. We will hate all the things God hates. We will hate and loathe false religion. You know, we have a tendency to think, well, you know, God's just pleased that people are worshiping him somewhere. Yeah, they may be worshiping a false god, and, and they don't believe in Jesus, and they deny all those things, and, and, but, you know, God's happy because, well, at least they're worshiping. No, he loathes false religion. And notice what else he loathes. He loathes lying. You know, and if I were to ask you what are the greatest sins in our day, you probably wouldn't mention lying. You wouldn't mention maybe stealing, hypocrisy, adultery, all those things he loathes. And we will hate and loathe when, uh, when someone dishonors his parents, the breaking of the commandment, or, or someone gossips, will loathe that, or, or slanders, or, or causes division in the body of Christ. And we will hate and loathe these things even when we are guilty of them ourselves. This is not pointing the finger away. It's, it's pointing at ourselves too. But we will loathe these things. Loathe um, evil. And so love abhors evil. Now, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin here is that it'll cling to what is good. Another strong word in the Greek, it expresses kind of a sticking or a bonding kind of with glue, if you look at it that way. Uh, it will bond to us good. Because we're loving, we'll bond ourselves to what is good. And so, here's the point. True love discriminates. Now, that may not sound like a bad thing to us, but really in our society, it's not too accepted. See, loving someone doesn't mean ignoring good or evil. Loving always makes a distinction. You may love someone in the face of them doing wrong, and we should, but it does not call wrong right. And see, that's what our society wants. You're to be loving. What's that mean? You're to accept everything and anything that I say or do. And, and no, Paul says, no, that's not how it works. Uh, love doesn't ignore the distinction between right and wrong. It distinguishes. It doesn't blur these distinctions. It discriminates. See, why? Because love's not mere sentimentality. It knows the difference, love, knows the difference between right and wrong, and it abhors the wrong, it abhors the evil, and it clings to the good. Now, let me illustrate. Basically, you're putting this into practice in your life when you're able to detest an evil act while practicing compassion to the person who committed that act. And so you abhor what they did, but you're compassionate to the individual. Again, let me give you an example. We are called as Christians to abhor the practice of abortion. It, it, it's an evil, a great evil, I believe a demonic evil in our day. Yet, that doesn't mean we hate and abhor and call demonic somebody who's had an abortion. We show compassion to someone who's had an abortion. 
You can abhor the sin while still showing compassion towards someone who's caught up in that sin. Now, they may not accept it. That's not the point. The point is, I can say that is sin. It is evil. God abhors it. In fact, he hates it. And yet I have compassion for you. You know why I can do that? Because that's what was true of me when Christ decided to love me. And so, both sides, we have to discriminate. It involves truth and honesty. Yes, love does. At times, we must speak the truth in love, even if, if doing it is not easy. At other times, it just means shutting up and, and just not saying anything. But it's a choice, love. It's a decision that you make, a decision to choose one thing and reject another. It discriminates. It hates evil but clings to what is good. And so our love for one another, for other believers, is to be God-like, genuine, yet discriminating, faking nothing, not being hypocrites, abhorring the evil, clinging to what is good. But that raises a question. Okay, in practice, we we gave an example, one example. How do these things work themselves out in day-to-day life? How are we to actually treat one another? And Paul provides some answers to that question in verses 10 to 13. In fact, he addresses 10 ways that we can do that. Now, we won't look at all these in detail. Um, I want you to enjoy your fireworks this evening. But there are 10 ways in which love behaves. 10 ways. First, we're to love one another, according to verse 10, with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Earlier, Remember, Paul used the word agape. That's why I pointed out the difference in the Greek. Now he turns to two other Greek words for love. And the word love in our text is a combination of those two words, phileia and storge. They're two Greek words that have the idea of love, and you'll notice the one pretty quickly. Um, It has to do with the affection you have for family, a love of a parent to a child, Um, and that's the one. The other he uses is Philadelphia. And we know that one. It's the city of what? Brotherly love. Um, Or at least it is a name. And our our text translates that word that originally had to do with family love. And Paul now takes that term and says, no, no, no. It's not just family love. It's a different family's love. It's the love we have as believers for one another. That tender, warm, affectionate love that we're to have for the members of the family of God. Paul is saying that we are marked as Christians by a devotion to this characteristic of a loving kind of close-knit family. A family that supports. He's talking about the model family. Obviously, families in our society have disintegrated, and they're not always a model. But the model family, the supportive unit, that's what we are to be for one another. We're to love and treat Christians as we would members of our own family. Dr. Boyce put it this way. Christians are our family, regardless of their background, regardless of race, nationality, occupation, wealth, or education. Even whether you're attracted to the person or even like the person, you are to love them. Those things are irrelevant. Our devotion to one another is not a matter, he said, of liking, um, but of life. 
It's of life. And then he writes, the contemporary church will never have the power of the early church until today's Christians love one another as a close-knit family. And so, genuine love, the biblical love we're looking at here in the church runs deep. It's deeper than blood relationships. And so, this is a love that is affectionate. Here's the second one. Paul says in verse 10, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. And so love in the Christian family is expressed in mutual honor as well as a mutual affection. We had the affection, now there's honor. In other words, we don't sit around and say, well, I'm going to wait until they recognize the work I've done. And we probably should, and we apologize if we missed it. But that's not what you're to do. That's not what I'm to do. I'm not going to say anything any, any nice to anybody here until you start telling me how great I am. <laughs> and when we put it in those terms, obviously, we wouldn't follow it. But we're not to do that. We're to, we're to say, how can I honor someone else? How can I put their needs first? If you're going to outdo another believer, then outdo them in showing honor and respect. That's what Paul is saying. Those who genuinely love show respect and honor for others rather than seek praise for themselves. So this is what love looks like. That's the second one. It honors. Third, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Now, a good paraphrase may read, do not lag in diligence. Or the King James puts it this way, do, be not slothful in business. And that seems strange. Because we think of Christianity as a family. And we think of our as a relationship, not as a business transaction. Uh, but the business he's referring to here is a business of being a Christian. Uh, and so the idea is if you had a business and you want to keep it growing, you're going to be zealous for that business. And so he's saying, be zealous for, for the Christian life. Uh, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, disperse your energy for that. We should work at being Christians. That's the point. One writer wisely said, your sanctification, what's your sanctification? It's your growing, right? Sanctification is this process that you're in, becoming more and more like Jesus. It, it must be made a matter of business, says this writer. It must be cared for and prosecuted in a businesslike way. You shouldn't be lazy, it can't be left to itself. If I opened up a restaurant around here and just said, well, I hope this works out, it would be closed within a week. I'd have to be diligent in that restaurant. Actually, when I was younger, I helped run a pizzeria. And the only people that worked there besides myself were the owners. They had to work diligently to keep it open. It didn't just run on its own. And so you had to be diligent. And that's what Paul's saying here about us as Christians. We have to be diligent. If we want to grow, and then we have to be, sense the urgency and hunger um, after righteousness, have a passion for righteousness. So this is the kind of love. That's how it's expressed, and, and a zeal for Christ. All right, here, let me pick up the pace. Fourth, we're to be fervent in spirit. The Greek word there, fervent, means to boil over. Uh, uh, the idea is that those who genuinely love have, this, have personalities that kind of glow with the light of the Holy Spirit. They radiate Christ. And so this is a love that is fervent for Jesus. And it's shown. They can almost see it. Fifth, we're to serve the Lord. Verse 11. Jesus said that if we love him, 
we will obey and serve him. What are the two great commandments? Love God and love for man. And we serve him. How do we serve Christ? By serving others. And, and, and we love others by serving them. And, and, and so you see, where love is something that you do. It's an action you take. You serve. It doesn't matter what you're thinking or what you're feeling. Although you should ask Christ to change your heart if you're not feeling the right things. But, but it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't just say, well, I'm not feeling that right now. I don't know how many times people have come to me in the past and said, well, I, the reason I'm going to get a divorce is I don't feel love. And I would say, well, where does that say that matters? You're to love. You choose to love. You make a decision to love. And then pray that the feelings come. And that's what it is here. There's this, this, uh, this desire to serve others is a demonstration, an action of love. Now, the next three go together. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, in the Bible, what's hope? Hope is that God has given me a promise, and that promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so I'm placing my hope in the promise of God that he'll do what he said he will do. And it ultimately has to do with the fact that someday our blessed hope is what? That Jesus Christ will return and fulfill all that he's promised. And so it's hope in what Christ has promised me. Um, The blessed hope, Paul says, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John says it this way, uh, we shall be like him. When he appears, for we shall see him as he is. And so that's our great hope, that God will fulfill his promise, and there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and I put my hope there. And so our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ should be characterized by this joy that that springs from our hearts as we consider the fact that Christ will indeed keep his promise. And yet, in the meantime, we need to endure the suffering of this life. What does he say? Be patient in tribulation. Don't succumb to the temptation to vent your frustrations against another brother or sister in Christ. And then, we read, we're to go regularly before the Father on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Be constant in prayer. And so, this is a love that hopes a love that is patient in tribulation, and a love that prays. Ninth, I'm going to go back over these real quick, but we are to contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13. We must do all we can to meet the needs of other believers, including bringing them into our homes in order to provide them with food and shelter. Uh, When genuine love sees another's need, it's responsibilities to assist wherever possible. You can't meet everybody's needs. Uh, Dr. Nichols is going to be here next week uh, doing the service, and I remember him telling me once, you know, you just see the overwhelming needs or you watch the news and your head's about to explode and like, how, Lord, can we, what can we do, what can we do? And he'd say, I just take the corner of that world that God's given you and minister one or two people. Meet their needs. They're the ones I can help. I can't let all the concerns and all the miseries of this world keep me from helping those in front of me. And so in Acts 2, we read about the church, that they had everything in common. They had everything in common in the sense that they shared their possessions. They didn't cling to their possessions. They shared with them because others had need. And that's a demonstration of genuine love. 
it gives. Tenth and finally, it shows hospitality, verse 13. Now, the word hospitality is interesting. It kind of translates a word that literally means love for strangers. And so uh, we have love of sisters and brothers. It has to be balanced with love for strangers. Generosity is shown to the needy. Hospitality, in that sense, is shown to visitors, to strangers. Both are indispensable expressions of genuine love. And Paul doesn't here say, practice hospitality. Notice that he says, seek it out. Well, I, I would be hospitable, but nobody's come over. And so I guess that's not what the Lord wants from me. I don't have to be hospitable. No, find someone. One early church father um, wrote this. We are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually inquire after them and look carefully for strangers to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their heads. Everything we can do to seek out and show hospitality to those, in this case, outside of the church as well as inside. And so love is hospitable. That's the picture of genuine love that Paul's painting. It's something more than warm feelings. For one another. It's a love that gets its hands dirty. It's sincere. It's discerning. It discriminates. It, it clings to the good and it, it abhors the evil. It's affectionate. It honors. It, it's zealous. It's fervent. It serves. It hopes. It prays. It's a love that is patient, a love that is generous, a love that is hospitable. It's the kind of life Christ call, kind of love that Christ calls us to display. Genuine love, beloved, is the mark of a Christian. I'll close with this. Jesus said that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you're in the right denomination. He doesn't say that, does he? Denominations are important. They help discernment and discriminating and understanding beliefs. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say if you have the right exact doctrinal statement, if you're Presbyterian, if you're this, if you're Baptist, whatever it is, if you had some extraordinary gift, you know, if you had the gift of healing, then he would know that you were, everybody in the world would know that you're his disciple. No, he says, if you have love, you know the verse, if you have love for one another, that's how they will know we are Christians, by our love. Love is the sign that you are his disciple. And so let me ask, again, let me close here. Do you love your brothers and sisters? I mean, after you hear that, if you're anything like me, you say, well, I've actually never loved anybody in my life. I mean, I I just, I haven't come uh, close to this. Have I really truly loved someone? And the answer is no, not perfectly. But this is what I know, and this is what gives me hope. I haven't done it, but that is how God loves me in Christ. That is how he loves me in Christ. See, before you can be an instrument of God's love, before you can demonstrate this this amazing love to those around us and to the world, you must first be a recipient of his love. John said it this way, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Notice what he says. 
not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to appease God's wrath because of our sins. Beloved, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so you see, if you're here this morning and you hear this message and you say, great, that's how I'm supposed to love, you'll never be able to do it, nor will you really want to do it unless the love of Christ has captured your heart. See, unless you have come to grips with the fact that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That, that, that though you're a sinner, he was raised for your justification. That he paid for God's wrath even though he, you were his enemy. That until you come to grips with that reality, that Jesus' death was for you, you will never love the way you were called to love. You are unable to do it. We're even unable to do it as believers perfectly, let alone if you do not know the love of God in your heart. And the only way you can know the love of God in your heart is if Christ himself is your Savior. And so come to Jesus Christ. Recognize that love. What amazing love it was. What amazing love. Not only were you not looking for him or searching him, you were his enemy and he sent his son. And then realizing that, that reality, now you are free. You've been freed up to put that love on display so that the whole world can see. That is my prayer, that the Holy Spirit would enable us to show such great love. Let's pray now. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the love that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that we would demonstrate that love in little ways, in big ways, whatever it may be, so that you would be glorified. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.